This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship's Summer Leadership Training back in 2020. The theme that year was Designed, where they studied the creation, fall, and redemption of God's beautiful design. We hope you find this encouraging. Designed is a wonderful title. I've spent the better part of my 17-year career as an interface designer. I make websites for a living. My name is Matt. Harama. I'm a pastor at uh, Stonebrook Church, I guess it's that way, in Ames, Iowa, and I'm really happy to be speaking to you this evening about the Imago Dei, which I love fake words. If you could find a Bible and open it to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, and while we're doing that, I wanted to say this theme is really an important theme because I think the most controversial claim of the Christian faith in our world today is the claim that not only is there a real God who created everything, but more specifically, that that God determines our identity. I think that's the most controversial thing that Christians believe today. I think if you, if you are out with your classmates on campus, my 13-year-old daughter was just having a conversation with her friend. The claim that God is the one who determines and says who I am and what I am is heresy in our culture, isn't it? In a culture that says you are who you think you are. You are what you believe you are. Who are you to say what's right and wrong for me? And the way they always answer that question is, of course, uh, well, of course, everyone should decide for themselves what is right and wrong for themselves. You do you. And doesn't the Bible say don't judge? But Christians are so bold as to say God exists. There is a God and he exists and he has defined you. He has told us who you are. And I know what that is and you can know it too. It's a crazy thing to tell somebody who doesn't believe in God in the first place and is brought up believing the culture's lie that you get to decide who and what you are. It's a hard pill for our culture to swallow, and, and man, unless someone could really see how amazing God's definition of them is, it's going to be impossible to grasp. Fortunately, God hasn't left us wondering. He has told us exactly who we are, and a big part of that is this concept we're going to talk about tonight called the Imago Dei, that we are created in the image, Imago of God, Dei. So look at your Bibles, open to Genesis chapter 1, right at the beginning. That's where we're going to start this summer. First two verses, it says simply this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's how the stage is set for the beginning of the story that the Bible tells us about what reality is. Genesis is really astounding. And Genesis 1, as a matter of fact, is really astounding. It's poetic. You gotta be careful, talk to your pastors about whether or not Genesis is poetry, but at face value, in Hebrew, it rhymes and it has meter. It smells like a poem, it sounds like a poem, and it tastes like a poem. Now that doesn't mean it's not telling you true things or real things. It doesn't mean that what's here isn't real. It's just that it does it in a very artistic sort of way, a very designed, you could say, sort of way. You see, God starts with an existence, a reality that it says is without form and void. Or what it means is uh, it's chaotic and it's empty. Without form and void means chaotic and empty. It's chaotic and empty. And then for the rest of chapter one, God goes about ordering the chaos and filling the emptiness. If you want to know what the creation poem, the creation story is about, it's about that. It's about that. 
On, on the first day, he takes uh, this emptiness and whatever is going on, and he provides the first set of order. He separates the light and the dark. He separates those two things. Apparently, prior to that, there was no separation between light and dark, and it was all just chaos. The first thing he does is he says, light, let there be light. The next thing he does, day two, he separates the heavens and the waters. He forms all of this chaotic stuff together, and he says there's going to be space and the heavens, and there's going to be a place where there are waters. So he's bringing order to the chaos. The third day, he takes those waters, and he then separates the dry land from them. Apparently, he was hovering over the waters of the earth, and he says, you know what? There needs to be a boundary line where the ocean goes. And from then on, we had beaches. He's ordering the chaos in Genesis 1. And then he starts filling the void. And the first thing he starts filling the emptiness of this earth, this empty earth. So now he has empty earth, but it's ordered. It's not chaotic anymore. And he starts putting plants on it. It's the first thing he starts doing. And the next thing, day four, he starts bringing some more order to the chaos. He says there's going to be lights in the sky for seasons. That's the emphasis, by the way, of that day. It's not necessarily that now there's a sun and a moon. It's now there's going to be, these things are going to mark out the seasons and the day and the night. So he starts the world spinning, and we have a 24-hour period, and we have the stars that tell us where we are at the time of the year and things like that. That's what he's doing on day four. If you're confused as why there's light on day one but no stars until day four, there was probably stars day one, they just weren't doing anything yet. And he gives them purpose on day four. Day five, he starts filling the emptiness again with birds in the sky and fish in the sea. And then day six is really important. He puts beasts and creepy crawly things on the land. Why am I going into all this detail? We're talking about the Imago Dei. Because after he does all of that, he does something really, really strange. In writing Genesis, Moses, who wrote Genesis, who wrote down this account, he rushes through about 2,500 years of history. If, you, if in, in 12 chapters from Adam to Abraham, you count those generations and you count the numbers, it's about 2,500 years. And he just fast forwards all the way through it in 12 short chapters, 2,500 years of history. More time than has passed since Jesus walked the earth. He just blazes through it in 12 chapters. And then he spends the rest of the book on three generations. That's a weird structure for some literature, and it gives you some idea about what his point is and what his emphasis is. But, okay, so my point there is that I just rushed through because Moses just rushes through lots of detail that he could have given us. He just glosses over the creation of everything. The origin of all the species. How did we get all the animals that we have? He just says, well, God said, let there be, and there was. All of the laws of astrophysics and thermodynamics, how did we get those, and what are they like? What does the Bible say? It just says, God said, let there be, and there was. That's all Moses tells us. He doesn't give us any answers to some of our questions in Genesis, by the way. He just says, yeah, there were animals. God said, let there be animals, and there were. He just said, let there be light, and there was. He doesn't say how it happened. And then he changes gears, and he slows way down. Look at chapter 1, verse 26 with me. He slows way down from astrophysics and light, just saying, yeah, it just happened, and yeah, there were just animals, and then there was, just, there was suddenly the beach and all of those things. And then he says something very specific. He said, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful 
and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living living thing that moves on the earth. And in chapter two, he backs up in the timeline just a little bit and we slow down even more and we find out that God bends down into the clay and he shapes a man out of the clay and he breathes life into him. Let's keep looking at chapter one. God created mankind on the same day that he created all the animals, but he did it in a unique way. Notice what he says about man. How does he say he created man? So far, what he said is, let there be light, and then let there be animals, and let there be birds, and let there be plants. But for man, he says, let us make man. He just kind of spoke the other stuff into existence. But for whatever reason, Moses describes God as slowing down and not just speaking, let there be a man, but actually sculpting one out of the dust, out of the clay. Why does he do that? Why does Moses describe creation that way? Because man is special. That's why. Another interesting detail, it says uh, for the birds and for the plants and for the animals, it says, um, let, us, let us create them and then they'll multiply after their kind. They'll just kind of work and do their thing. But then he said, of man, he said, let, the, let us create him after our likeness. So birds get to be created after bird kind, and cats get to be created after cat kind, and fruit trees get to be created after fruit tree kind. Man gets to be created in the likeness of God. We're not just another animal. And then God gives us a task. It's a similar wording to the task he gave to the birds, be fruitful and multiply, and to the animals, be fruitful and multiply. But to the man, he says, we're supposed to continue the work of ordering the chaos and filling the void. Have dominion over it. Have dominion over it. Men and women are created in the Zelem Elohim, the Imago Dei, the image of God. We are created in God's image. What does that mean? What does it mean that we are created in God's image? Well, what's an image? What's an image? Well, an image is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional reality. That's, That's rough definition of of an image. It's a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional reality. If you made a painting of me, that would be an image of me, but it wouldn't be me. In, um, on Black Friday, this last November, we got a cat. We got a cat. And we got him as a, a six-month-old kitten. We promised ourselves we weren't going to get a kitten. Um, my wife, uh, her dad is a veterinarian, and she's found out through life experience that it's actually better to get a cat that's a little bit older, a year and a half, two years. So you, its personality is a little more established. Its kittenness is kind of out of it, so it doesn't rip your carpet up quite as much, things like that. But we fell in love with Clive, the six-month-old kitten. And we brought Clive home, and this morning, uh, Clive had a veterinarian appointment. You know, we haven't had him into a vet yet to get checked out. We are getting concerned that Clive is getting to be a little overweight. Uh, Clive has doubled in size since we got him. Clive Staples, by the way, Clive Staples Lewis Harum. I love naming things because I'm a son of Adam. <laughs> Clive Staples. Um, on the way to the vet, my daughter Elena went to pick the cat up and bring him inside and he didn't want to come inside and the screen door accidentally slammed on his tail, cutting his tail. He freaked out and bit Elena five times, really hard, puncture, puncture, puncture. She has like 10 or, 10 or 15 puncture wounds on her arm. And uh, she had to go to the doctor, everything's cool, don't worry, she's fine. She's more concerned about the cat. Fortunately, we were on our way to the veterinarian, the veterinarian glued the cat shut and it was all good. 
this is not my cat. This is not my cat. This is an image of my cat. My cat is at home right now, walking around, licking his tail. This, this is not my cat. This is a picture of a cat, of my cat. This is an image, a two-dimensional representation of my cat. Why is that, Matt, why on earth did you make that distinction? <laughs> you would not have minded if I said, this is my cat. You wouldn't have, do you see, that that wouldn't have bothered you. Why am I going out of my way to say this? Because in the same way that this is not my cat, we are not God. We are an image of God. This cat is not prowling around my basement right now. This cat is a pixelated two-dimensional image and he's holding a stuffed fish. An image is a representative. An image shows off and shows something about the real thing but is not the thing itself. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm belaboring this point because in our culture today, we like to say, we're all gods. There's a God in you. And there's some very important ways that we as image bearers of God are distinct from God himself. In the same way that this digital image of my cat is distinct from my cat. This image did not have to go to the vet this morning. This image does not try to get out of the house to kill all of the sparrows in my backyard. This image lives on my computer. And now on your computer back here. But an image does help us recognize the real thing. And we are created in the image of God so that we can help reality, we can help all of creation see something about God, see something about who he is. We've, you know, when, when I first started writing this message, I'm like, okay, I need to tell these people what it means that we're created in the image of God. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? What, is it, what about us is the image of God? Is it, is it uh, what, what aspects um, do, of, of being uh, do we find in us? Well, you know, the first one is I started kind of writing my notes, kind of just brainstorming. I thought, well, you know, we're male and we're female. And that, that's one of the things that it means to be in the image of God. And there's theologians that make a great big deal out of the fact that we're male and we're female. So there's maleness to God and there's femaleness to God. And they've got it backwards. That's not how it works. We're the image. God is not like us. We are like him in a two-dimensional sort of way. But there is something about the distinction, the diversity, the complementarity of men and women that says something about who God is. And you know what? Um, I started brainstorming, what are some other aspects? And you know what? It was actually, I couldn't really think of anything. Uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's, you know, different traits, there's different qualities. Honestly, as I started doing the research into the literature, there's a lot of books about what it means to be made in the image of God. If you guys want some hobby reading this summer, there's over a thousand pages in this book. And it's got a little bit of everything. This is a systematic theology book, and it's got some really good stuff on the image of God. It's actually really important to read books like this from time to time. This will help you as you try to study what does it mean? What is marriage? How did God design marriage? What are angels about? Do we have free will? What's sin? What, those sorts of things, like books like this can really help us with. But you know what this book doesn't really say? A whole lot of detail about what it means to be made in the image of God. In fact, this particular book uh, says that it's not actually a question that the historic church really wrestled with. It's kind of a modern thing. What about me? What traits? What skills? What attributes about me are like God? Is it my ability to reason? Is it the fact that I have morality, the ability to choose from right and wrong? The historic church didn't really wrestle with those things. The historic church worried about something that I'm going to get into in a little bit. But I will say that all of these little attributes, morality, the ability to reason, the ability to uh, think abstractly, the ability to cultivate uh, farming and animals and things like that, those are all part of it. Those are all part of it. 
But we really get a clue, we really get a clue in this idea from Genesis 1, chapter, verse 26, where it says, let us make them in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion. This is a really important word, dominion. Because it's the thing that lets us know why we were created in the image of God. This is a little, I understand if you're feeling a little lost right now, I'm gonna try to try to clear it up here in a minute. This idea of dominion helps, helps gives us some clues about what it means that we are made in the image of God. So God says, let us make them in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion. And this theologian, John Frame, who's uh, one of my favorite theologians, he argues along with lots and lots and lots of others, he has a large bibliography about where he got all this, that this idea of dominion, this idea of dominion uh, is really important. He says, the image of God consists in those qualities that equip man to be Lord over the world under God. What's really important to understand, I need to clarify, when I say man, and when Genesis says man, for the most part in Genesis 1, it means mankind, humans, people, male and female together. Notice how it phrases it in uh, verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, mankind, Male and female, he created them. So it's, the, it's mankind that's the image of God, by the way. It's this group of beings that's the image. It's not that Matt Harima is the image of God. I'm part of it, as are you. You're part of it. But it's all of us together that's the image. That's a really important thing to understand. And... It's the things about this humanity that equip us to be Lord over the world under God. And John Frame, he, uh, he does all of his theology in a triangle. He calls it triperspectivalism. You don't need to remember that. But he says that there's three aspects to humanity, and we know this because it talks about this, that God set up these offices in the Old Testament quite a lot, and Jesus is all three of these things. But he talks about this idea of being prophet, priest, and king. And these qualities that equip man to be Lord of the earth can be explained in this three-part or this tri-perspectival, three perspectives, prophet, priest, and king. And it's these three things that summarize what it means that we're made in the image of God. So as a prophet, mankind's prophetic, prophetic qualities, our ability to use language, we're able to hear and understand God's words. God is able to reveal himself to us through language. God said, let there be light. And the prophets say, thus saith the Lord. It's a big part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Prophet, um, when I talk about authority as well, there's, a, there's an authority that the prophetic aspects have. And that authority just means we are able to understand and apply God's word. And our authority, whatever authority we have in the world over whatever it is we're doing is an authority that comes from God's word. We do things by the book, Christians do. Christians do things by the book. As a pastor, I have authority. I, I, I heard you were reading your little uh, notebook and it talks about obeying your pastors. Well, if your pastor tells you to break the law, don't obey your pastor. If your pastor tells you to sin, if your pastor tells you to do something that's sinful, don't obey your pastor. And I know that's not what the notebook means. What the notebook means, and what the Bible means in Hebrews 13 where it says obey them, is that as they minister God's word to you, they have authority. And it's not their authority, it's God's authority, and they steward it. And that's the prophetic office. We're able to understand and speak God's word. That is an aspect of being made in the image of God, the prophetic office. This is important. I'm going to follow these three things all the way through tonight. The second, the priestly aspects of what we do, the ability to be present with each other and to bring blessing. One, one really great summary I heard of this is that 
we have the ability to humanize the environment and humanize it in a way not that trashes it, but that causes it to thrive and flourish. And so we can talk about humanizing the environment and talk about CO2 emissions and how we're burning a hole in the ozone layer and, and global warming and all of that. That's not the kind of priestly presence we're supposed to have. That's actually a result of sin we will see in a second. But when humans are operating in a godly way in the image of God, when they are humanizing the environment according to the authority of God's word, that environment flourishes. Sin, is, sin gets in the way in every part we'll talk about. But we, but we have a, 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 a presence that brings blessing. We are able to bring blessing. That's what it means to be a priest. So we're able to help. We're able to care. We're able to weep with those who weep. We're able to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're able to grow things from the ground. Isn't that amazing? We are in the image of God like that. And then the kingly office or the kingly aspects that we have dominion, we rule over things and we have a mission. Kings have a mission and they have dominion or the ability to rule. And godly kings, when we manifest godly kingship aspects, it's about cultivating and protecting the world. We use our authority, we use our power, we use whatever it is we have to help. That's what it means to be a king under God, to protect. And in fact, all these things wrap together, so it's almost possible to talk about them at the same time. We use the authority that we have as kings to protect and to bring blessing as we minister God's word to people. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And there are a lot of applications to this. A lot of applications to this. The final important point is that a godly king, a godly human king, submits to God the Father. It's a really important point. We know a godly king knows that they are kings under the heavenly Father. We know that we have a higher authority that we will answer to. That's a really important aspect. But... We ended up in Genesis chapter 2 with God in the dirt making man and giving him these commands. Then chapter 3 happens. Turn to chapter 3. And this is where we come to act 2 of the evening. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And interesting, it's important to understand here that um, in the Hebrew, the serpent doesn't necessarily mean a snake. Um, it's a title for something. So Adam and Eve didn't go, ah, talking snake. So whatever spiritual being was called the serpent that they were talking to, for some reason it didn't freak them out to have a conversation with it. The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. You know what Adam and Eve's response to the serpent's statement, you will be like God, should have been in that moment? We already are like God. But there is something fundamentally tempting to a human being being made in the image of God that this idea of deciding for ourselves what good and evil are, deciding for ourselves what our identity will be, deciding for myself what I think I want to be. There's something fundamentally tempting about that. So here we have the fundamental satanic lie. Did God really say that? Did he really mean it? Are you sure? 
that this book was given to you accurately? Are you sure that the, the pages here in this English book, like, are they really? God's word? These are really the things he said? Didn't man make this up? Or, are you sure you're interpreting that correctly? I mean, there's lots of interpretations. What makes your interpretation better than somebody else's? That's the fundamental satanic lie. Did God really say? And we have the fundamental human rebellion wanting to determine our own identity and rules. This is a big problem. Interestingly, this word image, we are made in the image of God. That selim Elohim. That selim, the word selim is also used for the word idol. Idolatry. We are the image of God, but there is something about this rebellion that makes us insist on making other images. We're not satisfied with being the image. We need other images. We need other gods. Instead of saying, I am in God's image, we're tempted to say, I am God. And I wonder how many of us tonight there are things in our lives where we're saying, no, God, not to that. I'm going to choose this other thing instead. And in that area, I'm going to be like God, deciding good and evil. I know you said that, God, but did you really say it? Did you really mean it? How important is it really? And I'm going to choose this other thing instead. So we image bearers have a problem. Because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, We've been cursed as a race ever since, and we've proved ourselves to be their true children by falling to that same temptation every time, every single human being, except one. And we corrupted ourselves. The image that we bear now, the image of God is shattered. We still have it. We're still in the image of God, but it's got cracks running all the way through us. The entirety of the Old Testament shows us the curse that we brought on ourselves and we brought on the rest of the race. So in this act, the triangle, no longer are we all God's prophets. We use our uh, language to wield authority to believe and speak lies now, this side of the fall. We use our priestly presence not to bless, but we bring corruption, and we bring disease, and we bring death, and we bring perversion. We get really, really upset when we hear about religious leaders, um, religious leaders committing acts of um, oh, sex crimes, things like that. That's probably the biggest one, sexual uh, abuse, things like that. That really upsets us. And I think one of the reasons is there is something in us that knows that we are supposed to be a priest bringing blessing and healing, but instead we have brought death, disease, and corruption and perversion ourselves. Sin is especially bad, and it feels especially bad to us when we recognize it in our own hearts. We recognize the possibility in our own hearts. No longer are we godly kings, but instead we're tyrants. We abuse power for selfish gain. We're no longer in submission to God. We're in a rebellion against him. And that's really bad news. But I've got some good news for us. Don't worry. Because Act 3 is coming. And Act 3 is about Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation. Hebrews 1 verse 3 puts it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we see that Jesus, in his triperspectival nature, he's a prophet because he is the truth. He's a priest because he brings, with his presence, he brings healing. In fact, his name, Emmanuel, means God with us. 
and he is the king. He's the ruler of the universe and the ruler over the church. And he is in perfect submission to the Father. So Jesus is our hope. He's our key. Through Jesus' life and teaching, through his example that we see in the New Testament, the things he taught, the ways that he corrected the errors of the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the way his apostles then also corrected the errors in the church later in the New Testament, we get the image of, of what it means for us to be prophets and priests and kings. So we can look to Jesus and we can see, how am I supposed to be a prophet bringing the truth, believing the truth and speaking the truth? How am I supposed to be a priest bringing healing and blessing and manifesting God's presence? And how am I supposed to be a king ruling and exercising authority to help others thrive? That, should, that slide should say, rule rules the universe. Uh, Jesus is the ruler of the universe, not plural, sorry. Ruler of the universe. Another thing that we learn as we're reading through Colossians, I started in Colossians, there's a Colossians chapter three, verse nine. It shows us that God's image is in all of humanity. And I think this is especially relevant right now. We have a tendency because of our corruption, our fallenness, that we try to, in our kingliness, dominate other people and subjugate other people rather than help protect and bring them blessing. We try to lord it over them is the, word, the words Jesus used. We try to make hierarchies of who's more important and we worry about who's in charge and things like that. The apostle Paul said something very fascinating. He says that race, gender, nationality, and socioeconomic class have nothing to do with you being more or less in God's image. All humanity is in God's image. Listen to his words. He's talking to Christians. You have put off the old self with its old practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here, and he's talking about the church, here in this new creation, in this new life that we are trying to live together as the church, there is not Greek or Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. And in another passage very similar, it even says male, female. But Christ is all and is in all. Race, nationality. So Greek and Jew, that's race. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Nationality. Barbarian, Scythian. Nationality, culture. Slave or free. Social class. So white collar, blue collar. Class is a more relevant thing over in Scotland and Great Britain, is my understanding, by the way. The same way we have prejudice against different ethnicities here in the United States. Over in Great Britain, they have prejudice against upper class and lower class. I have a friend who's a church planter in Scotland and he says that's their big problem. But mankind created in the image of God doesn't take any of those things into account. In fact, it takes all of those things into the image. So the image of God is not all one color. The image of God is multicolor. This is really important to understand. And then we find a little bit later, Paul keeps writing in Ephesians, God's image is righteous and full of truth. He says, take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and in the purity of truth. So there's something about God's likeness that is about righteousness and the purity of the truth. And there's some activity that we're involved in called sanctification. Sanctification that has to do with putting off the old corruption and putting on the new self day by day. Sanctification 
means being restored from our corrupt, shattered image and being made into the image of Christ. And it's Jesus that's doing that in us, by the way. For the believer, God is using every single circumstance in your life, whatever's going on right now. He's using that to make you more like him. To chisel away at that old corrupt nature that we put on when we chose to rebel. That he's putting you through heat and pressure and stress to melt away, to burn away the old self in order to conform you to the image of Christ. Sanctification basically means becoming more like Jesus. It's one of my favorite words. It's an important concept in the Christian faith. Romans 8, this is probably a familiar passage to many of you. Romans 8, we learn something astounding. We are promised that it's going to work. Uh, this verse reference says Ephesians 4, 22. It's supposed to be Romans uh, 8, 28 through 30. And it says this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things, the stress, the pain, the pressure, the trial, the sadness, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be, here it is, conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. God's going to do it. He promises you, Christian, that as you follow Christ, you are going to be conformed to the image of his son. It's going to happen. That's really good news. This, this word glorified, glorification, that it ends with here. Glorification is the end result of sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. Glorification is finally being restored to the image. Your image is coming back, and this is act four. When we see him, we will be like him. First John says this in chapter three. Dear friends, we are God's children now. We are now. So Christian, right now, if you trust Jesus, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, to bring you back to God. If you admit you're a sinner in need of saving grace and you've repented of your sins, you've repented of your old way of life and you've trusted his work on your behalf, you are God's children now. And he says something, what we will be, and that is, again, restored to the image of God, what we will be has not yet been revealed. We're not there yet. We know that when he appears, though, we will be like him because we will finally see him as he is. So when Christ returns and finishes the work, finally, we will be glorified. We will be fully restored to the image of God. And good news, we get to spend eternity that way. We get to spend eternity renewed. Here's that triangle again. Prophet, priest, king, restored. We will finally use our prophetic aspects of being in the image of God, our ability to use language authoritatively to praise the triune God finally. We won't need to teach one another anymore. We all get to see him as he is. And we'll all say true things about him all the time. We use our priestly presence, blessing, in fact, our presence with one another and God all at the same time. We'll be with God forever. And interestingly, the Bible, uh, the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And he mixes the priest and king aspects. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen people. So interestingly, in the new creation, remember Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant, in the parable of the talents. You were faithful with a little, go be in charge of five cities. Do you remember that? We'll have dominion even in the new creation, whatever that means, and we will again be in perfect submission to God. Heavenly, I skipped ahead, that's all right. There's a, there's a, here, let me put all, all, of those, um, all of those movements, all of those acts together. So we were created to understand and speak God's word as prophets. We were created to be priests, humanizing the environment in a way that causes thriving. We were created to be kings, cultivating and protecting the world. But uh, because we believed the lie, we fell, we followed the serpent rather than the creator. We believe and speak lies. We are corrupted, bringing death, disease, and perversion. And we are tyrants, abusing power. 
But Jesus, the Redeemer, he is the truth. He is the healer. He is God with us. He's the ruler of the universe, and he submits to God. So we get to follow after him, and after a lifetime of doing that, we become fully like him, restored into the image of God, praising the triune God, with God forever, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, putting in, being put in charge of cities under God once again. That's the whole story of the entire Bible right there. That's our story. We're somewhere in those middle two columns. Where are you tonight? Where are you? I'm guessing that all of us, to one degree or another, are standing in that second column, fallen, staring at the third column, Redeemer Jesus, and being made more like the fourth column, but not there yet. We all span those last three columns in this life. That's where we are, but we have something amazing coming. Here's what the fully restored image of God looks like. First Corinthians 14, I'm almost done. 15, sorry. First Corinthians 15, flip there with me actually. Turn in your Bible to First Corinthians 15. So we started in Genesis, I'll have you turn all the way to the, the back. First Corinthians 15, verse 42. It tells us what our heavenly bodies will be like. What it will be when we are finally in the image. So, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, meaning our bodies when we're buried, put in the ground, it's perishable. Our bodies are perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If you underline your Bible, underline these words, imperishable or incorruptible, depending on your translation. Incorruptible. Power in verse 43. Incorruptible. Power. In verse 44, spiritual. Oh, sorry, I missed one. Verse 43, glory. And then power. Incorruptible. Glorious. Powerful. Spiritual. That's who you'll be. That's what it is to be created in the image of God. That's what it will be to be restored to the image of God. This is an amazing thing. That's why I'm ending here. This is what's going to be. This reality of what's going to happen when Christ finally comes back and restores everything to the way it ought to be. Our bodies are not going to die anymore. They're going to be incorruptible. We're not going to be, we're not going to be dishonored anymore. We're going to be glorious. We're not going to be weak with sickness and disease. We're going to be powerful. We're not going to be merely physical predominantly. We're going to be spiritual, physical and spiritual. We're amphibious beings. And this reality, look around you for a second. Look, look at the people sitting near you, behind you. Look around a second. Look around you. Think for a second. This person is going to be incorruptible, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. My sister, my brother, my friend, they're going to be incorruptible, glorious, powerful, spiritual. How should you treat each other knowing that someday that person next to you is going to be powerful? They're going to be glorious. They're going to be spiritual. C.S. Lewis, you know, it's familiar with C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote a lot of good stuff. What I miss? Yes, C.S. Lewis, good. All right, we're all good. I heard laughing. I'm always self-conscious when I hear laughter. It's been a few months since I've heard laughter when I'm speaking. This is great. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a sermon. He actually preached a sermon and he called it The Weight of Glory. And it's about this concept. He said, think about the future for a second. How should we treat each other? How should we treat our friend on the street? How should we treat somebody we meet out there? Doesn't matter what race they are. Doesn't matter what ethnicity 
they're from. It doesn't matter what city they're from. It doesn't matter what social class they're part of. These people are going to be like this someday when they're in Christ. He says this, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else they will be a horror and a corruption such as if you now meet, if at all, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, in some degree, we are helping each other, we are helping one another to one of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all our loves, all our play, all our politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is with immortals. It is with, it is, it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And it's, it's, it's this version of the new creation, this vision, sorry, this vision of the new creation that we're given. A whole world filled with these everlasting splendors. The Bible tells us that's what we're going to see one day. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, God spoke to him and put it this way. In that day, this is when the Lord returns and rights all wrongs, they will, they will not harm nor destroy one another in my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. And this is the vision in view at the end of Revelation, all the way to the last page of the book. Revelation chapter 7 puts it this way. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every ethnicity, every ethne, every nation, tribe, people and language with which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb and they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice in their many tongues in their many languages salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb that's the vision of the end and the beginning of eternity the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, Isaiah says, because it will be filled with people created in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, joyfully doing everything according to his design and purpose for them, and so declaring his amazingness to the entire universe. This is the future I'm looking forward to. Isn't the story of the Bible exciting? <laughs> Excited for you guys this summer as you walk out details of these things. Race and ethnicity and marriage and all of those things. Work, rest, all the detail here. I'm just giving you the big overview. Why don't you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, we're just amazed at the, the awe and wonder of the bigness of your creation. There's a lot to take in here more than like a, it's probably a fire hose of information about what it means to be in your image. It blows my mind. I'm created in your image. I'm not like any other animal. I'm like you. I'm like you. Help me to know what that means. Help me to apply it to my life. Help me to treat others in this way. They'll be, one day they'll be glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.